curses. It's something that exists across numerous countries, regions, beliefs. Everything from bad luck will surely plague you if a black cat crosses your path. Or don't walk beneath a ladder. Now, some of that just makes good sense to me, like walking under a ladder. Uh, If work's going on overhead, something might get dropped on you, right? But other curses are more unexplained and riddled with more questions than the sands of time. Tonight, we will focus on a quite popular belief of a curse, and that is the curse of King Tut's tomb. The subject of hundreds, if not thousands, of newspaper and magazine articles, spreads, TV series, books, and even the big screen. What's not to love? There's gold, treasure, mystery, intrigue, and let's add some mummies. Join us tonight if you dare, as we attempt to unravel the curse going back to the 1920s of King Tut's tomb. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I had gone to a museum, and for the life of me, I cannot remember where. And I asked my wife about it the other day. I said, hey, where, where were we when we saw the, the display on the, the curse of, of King Tut's tomb? It comes to Chicago. Well, she looked often. at me like she had no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, I know we went to a museum and we saw this and, and we read about this, because it was sort of what's put it in my mind at first. And then I know that you are a lover of, of Egyptology and ancient oh. Egypt. My wife, Sarah, and I both. And so I thought that this would be a, a good one to talk about. As, to that point, I remember been many years ago, because both kids, of course, were teenagers, and one of them was even a preteen. We were at home, and there was like a, an advertisement that popped up on a King Tut's you know, traveling exhibit making a stop in Chicago. And like that night, we went over to the internet <laughs> and got tickets. I mean, it was like, oh my gosh, this is as close as it's ever going to be. Weirdly enough... I think it may have been at the aquarium in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, that we saw the display, which makes little sense. But again, I know I've seen this on display. I just can't remember where. You know, of course, the curse of King Tut's tomb or the curse of the pharaohs or the mummy's curse, whatever you want to call it. A curse allegedly cast upon anyone who disturbs the resting place of a mummy uh, of ancient Egypt, uh, especially that of a pharaoh. The curse does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists. It doesn't matter your intentions. If you violate that sacred space, you can be subject to the mummy's curse. The curse is claimed to cause bad luck, illness, or even death. But despite popular belief, there was no curse found inscribed in Tut's tomb. I was quite shocked. Depending, yeah. Because I even have here in my notes that the tomb allegedly contained a tablet with the inscription, Death will slay with his wings whoever disturbs the Pharaoh's peace. Yes. But they say that wasn't there. So, again, it's kind of like many of the stories. It depends on what you want to believe. But I was shocked to have heard so much about this all my entire life. And then somewhat more than a little let down when I dove into it and was looking for the cold, hard facts. Some of the people that they are attributing 
The diet of King Tut's tomb was 40 and 50 years after the tomb was open. Well, I think the ones I focused on were the ones that died relatively close to the time. Like, mm-hmm. okay, Carter himself, who was the leader of the team. Yes. Lived to, what, 60-something years old? age. I mean, he was front man right yeah. there. Uh, so, But but there were other people, and, and there were also other things that happened that, that could have been part of the curse. But uh, I, I thought tonight with this podcast... Um, I wanted to start up with some of the early history leading up to the story. Uh, I like to set the stage, so to speak, uh, and then Bill and I can talk more about the curse. Well, first off, you have to remember, in the 1920s, for whatever reason, there was this great captivation with ancient Egypt, uh, and especially with the Americans. You know, it was probably the architecture, the fact that anything could have survived all those thousands of years. And then, of course, there's the stories of gold and treasure and mummies. This is when, I mean, grave robbing of that area took off again. It was like high society people. It was not unheard of for them to have a mummy in their library or a sarcophagus or human remains or canopic jars, you know, that would have contained organs. And this was kind of like normal for the people who could afford that lifestyle. I don't know about you, even if I could afford a mummy like that's again it's human remains i would not go that far now to have a few artifacts or whatever i think that's very cool but yeah you know this was once a part of a living person or a living person no don't think so i don't need human remains in my house but obviously the key player here has to be howard carter uh so interstage howard carter a very enthusiastic young archaeologist arriving in Egypt with his father, uh, who was allowing him to further his studies. By 1899, he was appointed the inspector for many of the excavation sites there in Thebes. He personally worked on many excavations in the Thebes area that would later be deemed the Valley of the Kings. He was especially involved with American financial backer Theodore Davis, who was quite interested and involved with many of the digs in the area, for some of those same reasons I was just talking about. This Theodore Davis was attributed to having personal belongings from the crypts, selling off some of those is what we would call the black market. Uh, however, just it wasn't really a black market at that time. It was just accepted. But uh, things did not always go well for Carter. In 1904, due to some issues with theft, he was moved to the lower southern portion of Egypt. The theft wasn't ever that Carter stole stuff. It was the fact that theft occurred in the areas that Carter was assigned to. He had, during this time, however, earned a very positive reputation for his finesse and care in not only digging but cataloging and showing respect to the archaeological finds. But two years later, in 1906, Carter found himself nearly forgotten entirely, not being an inspector or even involved with any archaeological digs whatsoever. He had feared his dreams were crushed. You know, he had spent his entire life up to this point, and he would be lucky he felt to get a single line of recording in history for his work there. Still, he did what he could to keep his foothold to stay there in his beloved Egypt, and he found a period of uh, several years where he sold paintings, just trying to keep money on the table. But soon everything would once again change for the good Kensington, England-born lad. It was at this time he was approached by esteemed George Herbert, better known as Lord Carnarvon, a wealthy man also taken by the allure of the ancient Egyptian archaeology, to a point he was ready to throw money at anyone who seemed to have any clue where to possibly look. 
and to help him discover something new and fantastic. Now, eager to get back on his feet, Carter and Lord Carnivan were a match made in heaven, the two working on many sites together up until 1914. Permission was finally granted to allow them to dig once again in Thebes in the Valley of the King. During this time with this unique title and being an inspector for most of the larger digs in previous years in that area, Carter possessed knowledge like that of none other, making him a specialist. Now, in his own scrupulous note-taking and skills, Carter had noted each and every major pharaoh's tomb that had been found there. Whether he be directly involved or not in that former role, he had hands-on. With the exception of one, a boy king by the name of King Tut. Now, it's been accepted simply that King Tut, it wasn't for the historical significance of this particular king that made him a target for Carter. And quite honestly, he was unachieved. He only lived 18 years old. He really hadn't had a chance to do much of anything. But it was to prove Carter's theory that every pharaoh king during that reign was buried right in this same spot, including the boy king. And again, like I said, he really did not do anything spectacular. But ironically, one thing that he did do was to move the Egyptian capital to Thebes to begin with. Now, keep in mind, as I said, King Tut, he he died at the age of 18. He ruled from 1332 to 1323 BC. The genuine interest was simply the lost tomb. For you see, most all of the king's pharaoh's tombs had been robbed and plundered many years ago and with it erasing valuable history that will never, ever be reclaimed. But if this tomb could be located and the boy king found to be at rest with all of those others after him, what an archaeological find that might tell and plug in many of the mysteries, answering the questions of now what was murkied water and erased history. 1914, however, wasn't the best year to start in the Valley of the Kings for a dig because of that pesky little thing called World War I that was going on. Excavation started but soon ceased, and Carter held back to work as a diplomatic courier, which he hated, but it kept him close by to the dig. Now, World War I would go on to last till 1918. However, things had started to settle down enough. The Egyptian authorities granted Carter and Lord Carnarvon permission once again to start redigging a year prior in 1917. After four long years, Carter and his crew continued to struggle and found absolutely nothing. Even Lord Carnarvon was losing interest after spending an insane amount of funding with relatively nothing to show. Now Carter felt he was close and he begged his friend and his financial backer, give me just one more season which was finally agreed. November 4th, 1922 started off like all the other slow days prior, but a 12-year-old boy who had helped on the crew had went to retrieve water and made a discovery in which he shared with Carter. Carter immediately sent a message to Lord Carnarvon. He tripped over the capstone, wasn't it? Yes. Carter immediately sent a message to Lord Carnarvon to quickly come to the dig site with haste, and accompanying him would be his daughter, Lady Evelyn. While they awaited their arrival, Carter instructed his team with all the resources available to start digging nonstop. Lord Carnarvon and his daughter, Lady Evelyn, arrived on November 23rd, and by the 26th, the tomb had been completely uncovered. But it was still not clear whose tomb it was. The three, Carter, Carnarvon, and Lady Evelyn, were accompanied by one assistant by the name of Artho Callender. 
and a small hole in the doorway was chiseled enough for Carter himself to squeeze through. Ironically, Carter had used a chisel that he had acquired on his 17th birthday to make that hole. Along with his role, it only seemed fitting for him to enter the tomb first. Now, Bill, I'll kind of relay that over to you now. They were the first people to set foot in that tomb for more than 3,000 uninterrupted years. And uh, basically, with that discovery, launched the modern era of Egyptology. Now, when open, the tomb contained over 5,000 artifacts, gold, jewelry, food offerings, and ornate statues. And, of course, the mummified body of Tutankhamun, the boy king. The tomb also allegedly contained a tablet, like we said earlier, with the inscription, Death will slay with his wings whoever disturbs the Pharaoh's peace. Which, you know, many people will say was not there. Mm -hmm. And it's with the disturbance of this tomb that we begin a strange series of events and tragedies, not only for those that entered the tomb, but for people even peripherally related to it. Uh, And we'll get to those as we we proceed. But I have here now a a chronological listing of the events of, of strangeness that happened after opening the tomb that starts with famous Egyptologist James Henry Breston, who worked with Carter. Uh, Soon after the first opening of the tomb, Breasted returned to his home. Upon his arrival, saw that his pet canary had been eaten by a cobra, and the cobra was still inside the birdcage. Now, of course, the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy, and the canary had been killed by the snake, and that fueled local rumors that the curse had already started its work. Uh, The incident was reportedly at the time interpreted as, as his home being broken into by the royal cobra, the same cobra that would be on Tutankhamun's headdress. Everybody should be familiar with the the snake, but it was to strike at his enemies. And this happened on the very day that the tomb was broken into. So even if a coincidence, it's one heck of a very strange coincidence. Now, Breston, of course, would not die until 1935, but his death did occur immediately following a trip to Egypt. So was he a victim of the Pharaoh's curse? Maybe, maybe not. Now, the first death associated with the curse would be none other than Lord Carnivon. Uh, Like you said, he was a financier of the excavation, uh, worked with Carter. He was bitten by a mosquito while on this particular trip, and then accidentally later cut the bite with a razor while shaving. I think he was getting ready for a dinner party at the time. That cut would become infected, and that would eventually result in blood poisoning, and Carnivon would die four months and seven days after the tomb was opened on March 25th, 1923. Now, legend claims that when he died, all the lights in his house, and according to some, all the lights in Cairo, went out mysteriously. Obviously, that, that's pretty, yeah. pretty crazy. Uh, now, two weeks before Carnivon died, Marie Corelli wrote a letter that was published in the New York World magazine, and she quoted an obscure book that asserted that dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. And the media took this up and just ran with it, the curse of the Pharaoh's tomb. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that the superstitious Benito Mussolini of Italy had once accepted an Egyptian mummy as a gift and immediately ordered its removal from the Palazzo Shigi because, you know, hey, he's not going to run the risk. Of course, he had it in his possession for who knows how long up to that point. Right. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Carnivon's death had been caused by elementals created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb. But there is more to the story, as they say. And Arthur Weigel, a previous Inspector General of Antiquities to the Egyptian government, reported that six weeks before the Carnivon's death, that he had watched the Earl laughing and joking as he entered the tomb. And at the time, Weigel told a reporter, I give him six weeks. <laughs> uh, now, the autopsy carried out on Carnivon occurred six months after his burial, 
they did find a healed wound on his left cheek, but due to the amount of time that had passed since his burial, it was not possible to determine if that location was the, the, the location of the fatal mosquito bite. Uh, the Lancet, a weekly peer-reviewed medical journal, concluded it was unlikely that Cardovan's death had anything to do with Tut's tomb, denying another theory that exposure to toxic fungi had led to his death. They point out that the Earl was only one of many to enter the tomb, and that his death was more than likely due to pneumonia caused by a strep infection in the skin of his face from the cut. Though pneumonia was only one of various complications coming from an increasingly invasive infection that would have led to eventual multi-organ failure. The Earl had also been prone to frequent and severe lung infections. So he was already weakened and his yeah. immune system was down. Yeah, according to the Lancet, one acute attack of bronchitis could have killed him. So there was another visitor to the tomb, George J. Gould, which I think you were going to talk about. Yep. Uh, just about a month later, after uh, Lord Carnivan's death, George J. Gould, another wealthy American financer who had just visited the tomb, died with the same affliction uh, with the blood poisoning aspect that was brought forth. Yeah. He died in the French Riviera on May 16th, 1923. Uh, the next person to be afflicted by the curse would be Sir Bruce Ingram. Now, he did not die from the curse, but he was gifted a paperweight by Carter in 1925, made of mummified hand with a scarab bracelet upon his wrist. Here we go with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. you're handing out human remains. Allegedly, the bracelet had an inscription upon it that said, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. So you put this in a paperweight so that it it people yeah. can see it and say, Hey, I got you this gift. Not long after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down. So Ingram went ahead and rebuilt, because that's what you do, right? Yeah. Then his house flooded after it was burned down. I wonder if the paperweight was destroyed, found, reclaimed, brought back uh, in the new house. No. Uh, Ingram did re- retain the paperweight, and then after his house flooded, he said, F this, and, and got rid of it. <laughs> this is not a good gift. So, again, shall come fire, water, and pestilence. He wasn't, he wasn't sticking wasn't around, around for, for pestilence. pestilence yeah. Carnivon's half-brother, an Aubrey Herbert, would also suffer from the curse simply by being related to the Lord Carnivon. No, that's a stretch. Uh, he had been born with a degenerative eye disorder, and later in life, a doctor suggested that maybe his poor teeth, uh, which had become infected, were interfering with his vision. In an effort to restore his eyesight, which I think anybody might, you know, if you were having vision problems, he had all of the teeth removed. But his vision, of course, was not restored, since that's not how teeth and that eyes work. That doesn't work that way. But he, too, would suffer from blood poisoning that resulted from this um, extraction of his teeth. Now, again, would, I, I'm going to say this is... Uh, I believe newspapers related. trying to find stories to make money. I mean, this yeah. this is how is it related? But but he did die five months after his brother. Yes, and he is attributed to the the curse. Yes, in 1924, British archaeologist Hugh Evelyn White hanged himself, allegedly leaving a note that read, "I have succumbed to the mummy's curse." Now later that year, the radiologist who X-rayed the mummy before it was given to the museum and authorities died of an unidentified illness. So we have those. Yeah, supposedly at, Hugh took his life after seeing, you know, at the time he said about two dozen of his fellow excavators had died and he, he suspected he was going to be next anyway. He was just going to beat him to the punchline, just hang myself. I have uh, Aaron Ember, an American Egyptologist, uh, was friends with many present at the tomb opening, including the Lord Carnivon. He died in 1926 when his Baltimore house burned down less than an hour after hosting a dinner party. Now, Get this, he might have been able to escape safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he had been working on while she saved their son. 
the name of the manuscript in question? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Ooh. Nice gig there. Yeah. Richard Bethel, Lord Carnarvon's secretary and the first behind Carter to enter the tomb, died on November 15, 1929 under suspicious circumstances, although at least one historian believes that you can blame his death on the works of Aleister Crowley, who we've talked about previously. Yeah. Uh, he was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. Now, I will say at this point, based on the dates, we are seven years yeah. after the We're opening after. of the tomb. Soon after his death, the Nottingham Evening Post published the following. The suggestion that the Honorable Richard Bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home where some of the priceless finds from Tutankhamun's tomb were stored. There's a connection. I have here an A.C. Mace. He was a member of Carter's excavation team. He died in April 1928 uh, and suffered from pleurisy and pneumonia in his final years. You know, that was... Again, I mean, it just seemed like he got sick. Pleurisy is just the soreness of your chest from coughing. I was diagnosed with that once uh, when, I had, when I had pertussis or whooping cough. And trust me, it's not fun, but I don't think it would have killed me. That's because you're a big, strong dude, Bill. <laughs> now, Howard Carter himself was skeptical of the curse of the pharaohs, and he dismissed it as just so much nonsense. Although, in May of 1926, he did write a strange uh, entry into his diary and that he had sighted a jackal of the same type as Anubis, who's the Egyptian guardian of the dead. And that was the first time one had been seen in his over 35 years of working in the desert. Hmm. And, and he would go on to die on March 2nd, 1939 of lymphoma. Although, of course, since he was the one who opened the tomb, a lot of people still attribute his death to that of uh, uh, the Pharaoh's curse. Uh, but he was 64 when he died, so he had, you know, he had some good years. Skeptics point out that many who visited the tomb or helped discover it lived long and healthy lives. Of the 58 people who were present when the tomb or the sarcophagus were open, only eight died within the next 12 years. Like I said, Carter himself didn't pass till 39. So, I mean, he lived a good long time now. James Randy, which I, if you're familiar with paranormal stuff, you should be familiar with James yep. Randy. What's the name? Yep. He's, he's a skeptic, and he wants people to prove things, which I don't have any problem with that. And his, uh, I think he had an encyclopedia claim, frauds, hoaxes, and occult, the supernatural book. Uh, he does admit that when the tomb was opened in 1922, it was a major event. But uh, he also believes that, that maybe Howard Carter himself put out the curse of the tomb, you know, that, that would strike those who violated the boy king's rest to try to keep the press at bay. It's a major historical discovery. And, and in those days. And grave robbers and, well, I was and whatever. Say, yeah. yeah. Those things weren't treated with the same degree of respect that they are now. So. If that's the case, that's actually very yeah. smart. He did not himself invent the idea of the cursed tomb. However, that, that was still an idea that was around. But he certainly, you know, according to Randy, he certainly took advantage of it to keep intruders away from his discovery. Why a curse, you might add? So where did this curse come from? According to Randy that we spoke of when King Tut's tomb was discovered and opened in 1922, obviously it was a major archaeological event. I don't think anybody would argue that even today. In, in order to keep the presses at bay and all that, that was speculation that that, that could have been not maybe created by Carter, but uh, definitely fueled and, and kept alive for that reason. In, in fact, the tombs of all royalty, not just King Tut's, were said to have very similar, if not exact, curses in wording and writing upon opening with no results of any evil effects at all. So you got to consider the Valley of the Kings, how many tombs are actually there. What he is saying is there is something similar on a medallion 
recorded of the same wording verbiage, if it even existed at King Tut's tomb. And you don't hear about any of that. You don't hear about all those tombs. But uh, again, we kind of go back to the curse. Here's one I wanted, wanted to share. Blessed be the man that spares these stones and cursed be that moves my bones. This is William Shakespeare's epitaph dating back to 1616. The world's best-known dramatist, Shakespeare was not being dramatic when he wrote these words. Instead, he was simply trying to prevent something unsavory that neither his fame nor fortune could deter. You know, his corpse being dug up by grave robbers. These, you know, this people would covet that type of uh, body, a bard's body, you might say, out of spite or malice. Others might want to seek it out. But instead, you know, wanted to, some of them might want to do it for science, to sell it to doctors for medical excuse. Even Shakespeare was worried about this. So, again, this curse was put on his epitaph, if you will. It's the closest thing in, in proximity we can do to a tomb with a curse on it. A curse is not a new thing. It's been around for years, and a lot of it is kind of like some of the fairy tales and the fables that we've talked about. They're not good stories. They're not child time, bedtime stories. They're the scare factor to keep people in line and to hopefully keep them from wandering down to the rivers or, you know, whatever and harm or death be coming to them. Well, I think James Randi even said it, that it's possible that Howard got the idea from Shakespeare's tomb. So that, that inscription, you know, so what, so what really happened? Many theorize that there may be a, a simple explanation for what happened in King Tut's tomb and why some people did die. Samples taken from the dead king's corpse reveal that the mummy was riddled with the fungal spores of Aspergillus flavus. Of course, it's a, it's a fungus. Most people breathe in Aspergillus spores daily without getting sick. But according to Tom Chiller, chief of the mycotic disease branch of the CDC, People with weakened immune systems can suffer severe infections in their lungs and sinuses when breathing in these spores. The resulting condition is called aspergillosis. Uh, some types are mild, but some can be very serious and even deadly. And you'll notice there were a lot of people who died of, of blood infection or pneumonia. And, and they even said Lord Carnivon himself, it may not have been the blood infection, but pneumonia that killed him or his weakened immune system, which was already compromised. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Aspergillosis is often associated with like stored grain that kind of sours and molds. Aspergillus flavus, as found in the tomb, produces a toxin on stored grain, which can be very harmful and even fatal to humans and animals. Inside the tomb were bags of bread and raw grain. For over 4,000 years. Placed there as offerings and possibly harboring a toxic agent all those years. So... Can you imagine how rank uh, that could be after 4,000 years? And and again, our bodies build different immunities. That's that's, an old. That's what I was going to say. You're talking something locked away in that tomb for 3,000 plus years, and maybe their bodies just weren't ready for it. We've talked about, I think, on on this before, but I've seen like TV shows, movies, when a you know, with the thawing of the permafrost and things like that, there's this, this going thought that we may have diseases to which we are not prepared to face you know, getting ready to be unleashed because of global warming and, and climate change. And or diseases that we've thought we eradicated, but this is such an earlier form stage yeah. of it that, you know, polios and different things, those injections and stuff might not hold true against that OG version, if you will. So so sometimes we ask these questions of ourselves, uh, like with the dinosaurs and things, we talked about Jurassic Park and would you still go? So if they discovered a new mummy's tomb and you had an opportunity, 
Would you risk the curse? I would not be the first to show up. <laughs> I would let it air out a little bit, and then I would feel totally safe about I mean, going in. Now, again, the odds of us being invited to a historical excavation seem pretty slim, but. We could just be those people that just show up. I, yeah. I just wonder. Hey, we're here. We're supposed to be here. Just We're just acting yeah, like we I, know I what I'm we're doing. I think I'm with you. Let them air it out real good Yeah, first. let them air it out. I feel a little I better. I don't want to breathe in those spores. <laughs> ah, so I, I think we're going to move on to headlines. So my headline is from interestingengineering.com, April 4th, 2023. And it's going to tie right into the end of this episode here. Uh, The Mummy's Curse. Traveling Mexican mummies from 1800s harbor fungi and may infect the public. According to this article, a recently published Associated Press article stated a traveling exhibit of ancient mummies from Mexico might contain fungal colonies and could be dangerous to the public. Uh, This issue was raised by Mexican authorities who have also called for a review of how the mummies are displayed to guarantee the safety of visitors. In response, the National Institute of Anthropology and History told the Associated Press, From some of the published photos, at least one of the corpses on display, which the Institute inspected on November of 2021, shows signs of a proliferation of possible fungus colonies. It is even more worrisome that they are still being exhibited without the safeguards for the public against biohazards. Uh, The mummies in question are known as the mummies of Guanajuato and date back to the 1800s and they are the result of corpses being buried in mineral-rich and dry soil. Now, the main issue with their display is the airtightness of the glass cases that the mummies are being displayed in, and that it's possible that spores could infiltrate the building. You know, these, these are more modern mummies, but it's the same kind of idea that we could have this, uh, these fungal spores Absolutely. and people breathing them in and getting infections. And again, I mean, even back in the 1800s, maybe they're, you know, maybe we're not quite prepared for that. And honestly, with the modern anti-vax movement, you know, we're, we're probably not protected from a lot of the things we should be anymore. So. <laughs> well, for my nightmare headline, I, uh, I decided to try to lighten things up a little bit and maybe fitting, maybe not fitting, definitely not a normal headline. I wanted to share some of my nerdism, semi-related to the story of this ancient Egypt and my current Dungeons and Dragons ongoing mission, um, which I am, of course, the DM of. Now, first off, the group I DM for is a good friend of ours, Eric H. Yes, there's actually two Eric's in our group. Sometimes it does become confusing. Uh, Then we have a husband and wife, kind of our extended family, uh, Stephen and Heather. And then we have another coupled friends, Jeremy and Lula. And then, of course, my wife, Sarah, play together. We try to at least every week. And um, we started the game we are in uh, November 6th of 2020. So we are approaching two and a half years playing these exact characters. And I've made no secret, nor has Bill, that you know we both love RPG gaming and, and DMing and myself since the mid-1980s. It's always so hard, at least for me, to come up with new storylines and fantastic adventures that haven't been done before. Because some of my players have played with me at my table, uh, in particular my wife Sarah, for 30 years, and Stephen probably close to 15 years. I don't like to do the same thing over and over. So, I've done something that I've never, ever, ever done before. I brought my group of Dungeons and Dragons medieval adventures to the future over 4,000 years. To be precise, it's the year 2025, just two years away from present time. I wanted to allow my players to experience decisions and choices that was made in the game uh, and how they can have a long-lasting effect just like that of real life. 
to a point where these occult-like vampire wannabes have prosthetic mouthpieces with fangs that allow them to bite, but not to drink the blood, but to extract blood and gather DNA. Then this is sold to the secret underground society where powerful rich people, political people, want to have clones made of themselves so they can have the clones go out and also for these people to find anybody with special traits that they might want to cross if you will the whole jurassic park jurassic world thing and create new creatures or or new abilities now where i'm going with this is eric h one of the players plays a high level cleric priest of anubis hence the whole egyptian tie-in now he is found in this campaign some of his actual belongings in the Chicago Museum of the Egyptian Traveling Showcase. During the game, a couple nights, just a couple nights ago, it was realized that one of their longtime enemies, one of my favorite NPCs I've ever created, an Egyptian lich lord by the name of Simungali, is a mummy that was recently unearthed in 2024 and is on tour here at the museum. And with magic becoming science and the age of DNA opening up to cloning, you can see what I'm trying to do here is put, keep the medievalness alive, but it's under new labels today. There was a vigilante group that was hired to extract DNA from this ancient evil lich lord by possibly rebirthing him, bringing him alive from the dead. However, missing genes, so maybe be mixed in with other DNA and creatures. Now, My characters relate this to the magic of the wizards and the dark places who have originally made, you know, necromancy, you know, owlbears, chimeras, hydras, and such of crossings. So that is alive and well, and I'm explaining it by DNA. Now, this has kind of shattered the minds of some of my players as they have struggled so hard to find their way in this new strange world of computers and video surveillance and DNA and merging of cloning. They just simply don't understand it. So I have these super beefed up two and a half year old players that thought nothing could stop them that are now being harassed by guards in an airport because they don't understand why they can't carry their swords through the airport. (laughs) As, As characters find themselves so many thousands of years in the future, but ultimately still facing one of the most powerful lich lords they'd ever encountered. And with that twist, it all kind of made sense to me. It's like an Egyptian curse. It's its own madness. And again, my characters thought they had defeated this evil being and now he's back so again not the normal uh, headliner but uh in my mind i thought i wanted to keep things a bit more lighthearted. so wanted to share that we hope that you've enjoyed at least a part of our dive into the curse of king tut's tomb is it a real curse are curses real we'll let our listeners decide thanks so much for listening I think this was mine, right? Uh, I think I might have thrown it out there, but I might have thrown it out there for you. <laughs> I think I might have been the original, part, but I mean, again, I was thinking, so if you have an intro. I, I have an intro if you want me to do it. If you oh, have one, I don't it. carry the way. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me (laughs) and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and 
clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.